All right, well, the title of tonight's message is Moses' Final Blessing. Moses' Final Blessing. We've gotten to the point where we're to the last two chapters of Deuteronomy. Probably could have tried to push all the way through chapter 34 tonight too, but we're not going to. We're going to, Lord willing, have sort of a wind down next time we meet on to discuss Deuteronomy and also do somewhat of a review or overview of the, the book that week. And that will be the end of Deuteronomy for us. But tonight we're at the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy, which encompasses this parting words of blessing that Moses has for the nation of Israel. And as you think about Moses' final blessing, it's his opportunity just before his death to have this mindset of having a intercessory prayer or a desire for the well-being of the people and to pass that on to them, even though we saw that in verse 32, he's already foreshadowed or he's already aware in a prophetic type of a way that the future is not likely going to go well for the nation because they've established a pattern and a history of turning to the Lord in faith, walking in dependence on him for periods of time, but then turning away from him and doing life on their own, living life apart from him and having to suffer the consequences that come from that. But in chapter 33, it's a very uplifting chapter. Verses 32 was Moses's, the song of Moses, which wasn't a particularly positive song. It was kind of a sad song. If you didn't hear that message, you can listen to it online from last Wednesday. But blessings in the Old Testament, when you think of Moses' final blessing, they were like a last will and testament. It wasn't a blessing maybe like you would initially think of it. It it was a blessing more along the lines of, I'm passing along, I'm passing on, and I want to communicate verbally some things to you in the form of wishing the best for your life. And also I want to pass along how my things are going to be disposed of. And so it has a little bit of a sense of that had been the traditional way of looking at a blessing in the Old Testament. So a father would communicate verbally these blessings to his children before his death. And the blessings included a number of things, but words of encouragement you could find in them, warnings, reminders of things that a father wanted his children to be particularly mindful of, details regarding each son's inheritance, and predictions and prophetic words concerning the future. Now, examples that you could look at, the patriarchs specifically passed on, or each of them gave blessings just before their death to their children. You can see that with Abraham. You can see that with Isaac. And probably most famously in some ways, you can see that with Jacob as it relates to these same children that now represent these different tribes of the nation of Israel. So as Moses is going to go through and do a blessing, he's going to do it child by child, but referring to each of these individual tribes of the nation of Israel. Now Jacob, when he did it, he wasn't referring to some future tribe that would be associated with that particular child. He was doing it to that specific child in in person. And so now that child has come to represent a group of people within the larger nation of Israel. So in Jacob's case, it involved his own children and also some of his grandchildren as there was a blessing passed on to Joseph's two children, Manasseh and Ephraim, that we'll look at even here tonight. So receiving a blessing from one's father was a high honor 
But there's also examples of losing a blessing and that was tantamount to a curse or having some sort of a, a negative thing passed on to you by your father and as it relates to his desire for your future. And instead of having this positive sort of ending to life where I want to give you my blessing or send you off to live life apart from me because I'm going to be leaving the scene, I'm going to be moving on, and I want to instill in you some positivity or some positive direction, some, some positive expectation for your life, instead that would be very negative to miss out on that blessing. So now you come to the nation of Israel and you come to Moses. And Moses is acting or he's been representative of this father figure for the nation of Israel. So for all of these people, he's acted as a father of sorts because he's not viewed, although he's a leader and he's viewed as in a public servant type of a way as being the leader of the nation of Israel, he also has this specific view of, we looked at it last week, where he's a mediator of of the people between God and, and the nation. He's He's been somebody who has set some direction and been in charge of running the government on a, on a human kind of a scale. But he's also been the person that the people have come to to settle disputes. He's been the, a kind of a father figure to all of them as they've looked up to him uh, with varying degrees of trust and varying degrees of appreciation depending on the time. And so there was ups and downs in that relationship. But he has this fatherly relationship and this, this loving relationship interest in the well-being of this nation. Moses has communicated to them throughout the book of Deuteronomy this very deep concern and care that he has for them. And you think about any spiritual leader, a leader that's being directed by God and is an emulation of God in any ways, that compassion and that mercy, that tender loving kindness, that graciousness, that love that God has for his children, if a human being is acting as a reflection of that at any point in time, then that would naturally be true of that person. And it was true of Moses as he's in some ways a a type or an example of even the the redeemer or the redemption that's going to happen through Jesus Christ. So there was a lot of similarities between his concern for people and God's concern for people as as when he was being led or directed or or walking in dependence on God's direction for his life. Moses, Moses was known for having or reflecting those qualities in his leadership to the nation and they looked up to him. And so as a father figure of sorts, it's natural that Moses would end his life with a blessing directed to the people via their tribal designations. And so it would be a very personal thing in some ways. He wouldn't go person by person, but by going tribe by tribe, he was making it clear that I have this interest in the future well-being of all of you after I've passed off the scenes. And the reality is that's how we should see one another too is looking at one another with a sense that as an older generation, as somebody who has the opportunity to mentor, to come alongside, to, to invest in the lives of younger people that are growing in their faith, as somebody who is more mature in their faith, I have this interest in when I'm gone, that legacy continuing through these other people, these younger generations. And we hopefully can instill in our own children, but vicariously in the lives of other young people that we are in contact with, this great love that God has for us, we can show that to them through our example and our witness and our testimony. And the fact of the matter is many of you, 
being older and more mature in your faith than even me, have been that and continue to be that even in my life. And that would be the model that God shows us in his word, that one generation would pass on that love and that concern and, and be a reflection of God in, the, as a, in their own lives so that other people could see him through the things that they see and hear in us. And that, that would perpetuate itself as one generation would sing those praises or lift up God and his goodness to the next and so on and so forth. So there would be this perpetual sense that it would be passed on and on and on and on and it could continue to multiply. So it's very appropriate that this is how the book of Deuteronomy is largely going to end. The last chapter doesn't have any real words of Moses. Uh, The focus of the last chapter is just to account for his death and the transition of leadership to Joshua. So this is really the last things that Moses has to say to the people and so it's, it's fitting that it's this type of blessing that represents the patriarch's way of passing off the scenes and passing this truth on or these hopes and expectations for the next generation. Now, because it's structured as in, in poetry, just like the Song of Moses in chapter 32, because the blessing is done in a very poetic way, and in fact it's written as poetry, it makes interpretation a little bit complicated because sometimes you think about this even this phrase poetic language or even poetic license the thing about poetry is it's not real direct it's intended to have more of an artistic expression of of language and because of that it leaves open to a little bit of uncertainty what some of these things are related to but we're going to dive into it here tonight and see what we can make of it do the do the best by God's leading and and so let's turn there if you haven't to Deuteronomy chapter 33. Now, the first verse of Deuteronomy 23 acts as this little mini introduction of sorts. And so it says this, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. So pretty straightforward introduction. I couldn't just skip across, though, this phrase. Moses, the man of God. There's a lot there. The Moses, the man of God, it's likely rep- referencing his role as a prophet or a messenger of God. This is the very first time, just for those of you who like details about the Bible, this is the very first time that this designation is used, that somebody is described as a man of God. Moses, the man of God. Moses is referred to this by that title three times total. One time coming after this, this is the first time, but in Joshua 14, verse 6, he's going to be referred to again as Moses, the man of God. And in Psalm 90, in the inscription to the psalm, he's referred to as the man of God a third time. So three times that Moses is referred to as the man of God, it then becomes a phrase that ends up being used in Judges and First and Second Kings to primarily describe God's messengers, prophets specifically, not always prophet, but people communicating a message from God and they're called man of God, O man of God, you could hear a number of different times in reference to those types of individuals. But it's interesting, that phrase, uh, that's likely what it's referring to, but being the first time it's used, who knows if that's specifically what it means here in this exact context, but setting all that aside, setting aside that it, it becomes synonymous in the future with this idea of somebody who's speaking on God's behalf or is God's messenger, setting that aside, what an awesome description. What an amazing way to describe somebody. 
And I couldn't help but looking at that. Moses, the man of God, insert your own name into that and gender into that. And think, man, what if somebody were to describe me that way? What, what if I was to be known as God's man or God's woman? That's powerful as you think of what are all the things I could be known for? What, about, what are all the things that could shape my identity personally and then how other people might see me? And wouldn't it be aspirational anyway? Wouldn't it be great to, to have a desire to be known as God's man, God's woman? Now, again, I'm stripping that of the exact context, which, again, probably refers to more the idea that God spoke through him, but still a fun little thing to make a note of. Now, the second few verses here, verses 2 through 5, acts as a historical review. So let's read those verses. We're now into the poetry, so the language is going to be a little bit tougher to read, and I know I can't pronounce all of these names correctly, so we're just going to plow through them and hope for the best. But in he said, this is Moses, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun when the leaders of the people were gathering all the tribes of Israel together. So as you can see right away in these first five, actually these next four verses, verses two through five, there's some interesting language there. We're maybe not going to be able to get a full sense of it, but the historical, it's a historical review and it's more than that. It begins with this praise for God praise for his deliverance in the past. It's a, it's a historical review in that sense. And just like we'll see with the last verses of this blessing, again, also a poem. But the last verses of this poem, verses 26 through 29, they do the same thing. It, instead of having a specific blessing to any group of people or tribe, he just starts by lifting up God and God's greatness and praising God for his past deliverance and his past direction in their lives, his past involvement with them. And as you think about beginning with God's praise and ending with God's praise, everything should begin and end with praise for God's greatness and goodness. There's, there's both aspects to that. You see the fiery, you know, you have this sort of this, this warrior kind of a motif there with some of it. So you have his greatness on display. You have, you have his glory on display, but you also have his goodness on display. You see that with verse 3 where it says, yes, he loves the people. We'll come back to that in a second. second. But you see, he shone forth. So you have his, his greatness there. He came with 10,000s of saints. We'll see that's a reference to angels. Uh, that shows his greatness. From his right hand came a fiery law. Again, his greatness. But then you also see his love there on display, his goodness, and how he had provided for the nature. He had, he had dawned on them. He had seen fit to dwell with mankind as we saw that God was all around them. He, he led them by day. He led them by night. 
he provided for them in terms of meeting their every need, even their physical needs, how their shoes did not wear out as Moses has reminded them, how God fed them, whether it was manna or it was quail, how he, he quenched their thirst with water, how he conquered many of their enemies and provided a way when there was no way even in light of the Red Sea and other big moments that God had undertaken for this nation in the past. And so when you're reflecting on God's greatness and his goodness, that's key to any successful present walk of faith. You're never going to have a successful present walk of faith if you're not remembering who your God is and what he's done in the past for you and what he's promised to continue doing in the future in the present moments that you're going through now. If you can't trust him and see his greatness and his goodness, see that he's on your side, he's not against you, he's for you. He's not just a little bit for you, he's completely for you. He's not just for you some of the time, he's for you all of the time. He's not just good some of the time, but as the saying goes, God is good all the time and all the time God is good. If you don't meditate on that, if you don't have that front and center, then the rest of the specifics of the blessings that God has for you or the direction that he has for your life, it's not going to be compelling. It's compelling because you see his love and his mercy and his compassion and his grace and his goodness. And as you see that, you see, here's somebody that is worth living life in dependence on. Here's somebody worth leaning into. Here's somebody's hands that are worth collapsing into. Here's somebody that I can trust with the affairs of my life. I don't need to lean on my own understanding. I can give this to him. I can collapse restfully into his hands as we're going to see that brought out at the very end of even this poetic blessing that Moses has for the nation. So Moses presents the Lord as a divine warrior coming from, having come from Sinai since that is where he visibly met with Israel to give them the law. The holy ones are likely to be angels were escorting him on this occasion when God revealed himself through words in verse 2. Verse 3, we see that amazing just statement stuck in the middle there. It's a standalone clause with a semicolon there. He, yes, he loves the people. And you think about that. That has come out a number of different times in Deuteronomy that we have to be reminded that God has this intense interest in people. He has this great love for people. And because of his great love for people, he then undertakes to make a way where there is no way. There is no way apart from him. There was no way to be justified for a sinner to ever be found to be in a right standing with a holy God. There was never any way to be justified apart from him. And there was no way to live life in a way that would bring him glory apart from his direction and provision and enablement in your life. There is no way apart from him. But because of God and his great love for us, he provides a way. He provided a way in terms of the penalty of our sin and he provided a way in terms of present practical sanctification being set apart for his purposes to be used by him. See, God has a plan for our lives. God doesn't just intend for our lives to be spent doing nothing. He intended for our lives to be a reflection of him, to be lives that could be directed by him, that would be lives that would be lights for him and point other people to him so that others could be attracted to his goodness through his reflection in and through you. And that's something that stands here as just a, it's sort of thrown in there. I mean, it's, yes, he loves the people, 
everything that God is doing is colored by his love. That's the way to take that. You just get done hearing about his law, his fiery law. And some people, when they get focused on God dictating or God commanding, God is giving instruction and direction. That's the way to look at God's commands, to look at what God says is right. He's not doing it for any negative purpose. He couldn't do that. That's incompatible with his character. Everything he does is for man's good. And that's why I love, lest you be tempted to put too much of a focus on the law or obedience or stepping in line and forget that all of that is just God directing in a way that would benefit you in a love response to you and your love response to him. It's then just stuck right in there after that. Yes, he loves the people. And then you go on verses 3 through 5. The idea there is God uses people to teach others. So in this instance, he used Moses, but he's talking about how all the saints are in your hand, meaning he had. Some people take this as this is referring to God, and some people take these verses as it's referring to how Moses was entrusted with the leadership of the congregation. I actually think it's referring to Moses as being entrusted with the leadership of the nation of Israel. He gave the law, but he didn't administer the law directly. He gave it to men as under the instruction and the leadership of human people, whether it was Moses who then taught the Aaronic Aaronic priesthood so that the Levites could administer the law and that he appointed people to serve even as representatives from each tribe to account for the civil structure. So you had the moral law, you had the civil law, you had the ceremonial law, and it was passed on to people to implement and to, it was given by God, but it ultimately, it ultimately was put into practice in some ways by people. So I think that he changes his tune here after saying he loves people. All his saints are in your hand, a reference to Moses. They sit down at your feet, a reference to the idea that they were taught by Moses. Everyone receives your words. The whole nation gathered to hear what God had spoke through Moses. Now, yes, it was God speaking, but he was speaking through a human instrument, and that was Moses. Moses commanded a law for us, and that's why it makes sense that the rest of that is referring to Moses. A heritage of the congregation of Jacob, and I believe it's still referring to Moses here in verse 5 when it says, and he was king in Jeshurun, meaning he was treated as the civil leader of these people. He was even referred to as that, not by them, but there's at least one instance where he was. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of the Israel together. Now they gathered together to listen to who? To listen to Moses. God spoke to Moses and through Moses, but primarily Moses was the human instrument that God worked through, and I believe that's what's being taught there. Now that's very similar to 2 Timothy 2.2, this idea that God uses people to teach others, and then those people pass that legacy on so that then those could teach others too. And so 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, what does he say to do with that truth though? Commit those things to faithful men, who will then do what? They'll be able to teach others also. There would be this ongoing, again, repetition of propagation or future continuation of God's truth as it was communicated from one generation to the next, from one person to the next, so that it could spread as God would use human instruments that were willing to be used of him and directed and led by him and empowered by him to fulfill his purposes for mankind. Now, before we get into the specific 
blessings that were assigned to each tribe here, a couple of general observations. Because starting with verse 6, up until the closing praise of God that's brought out in verses 26 through 29, so those 20 verses roughly, there's going to be these specific blessings that are given to each of the tribes. And one of them is missing. I forget which one. You'll have to look that up yourself. There's no explanation given for why there isn't a a blessing for that tribe. Uh, I used to know. (laughs) Uh, But more than one day passed, and so now I don't know anymore. So, So you'll have to look that up. But as he gives out those blessings to the individual tribes, just a few things to note. Unlike some of the patriarchal blessings, and Jacob in particular, that contain elements of prophetic or predictive statements that are foreshadowing events to come, Moses' blessings concerning the tribes are formulated more like prayerful intercessions. Prayerful intercessions. There's not this aspect of prophetic or predictive foreshadowing of the future. Moses is, this is all focused on good things. It's focused on positive things. It's focused on blessings or aspirations that Moses has for the nation, even though we know from other passages that Moses knows that the future will likely not bear these things out. But does that mean that it's impossible? No, Moses knows that with God everything is possible. So as he communicates these positive desires that he has in an intercessory kind of a prayer, this is my prayer, this is my hope, this is my desire for you, would be the way to take these individual statements he's going to make about the different tribes. He's not saying it as if this is what is going to happen or I I am foreshadowing that this will happen with each of these tribes. He's saying that in my great love for these people, this is my hope and desire for you, that you would allow the good things to be fulfilled through you by the all-powerful God that you serve. And if you'll focus on trusting him, these things can and will be true of you. But yet we know that many of these things don't end up being true because the nation of Israel as a whole, but individually as different tribes and individually within those tribes as specific people, people made choices not to trust the Lord. So many of these aspirational or desires that Moses has for the well-being of the individual tribes, they don't end up, they don't end up all coming true. And so that's something just to keep in mind that this isn't necessarily having those prophetic elements that Jacob's blessings have as he had the ability to see the future in in many ways and he predicted things about his different children that came true or would end up coming true. But what they express is his fervent desire for his people, for the nation of Israel, he has this desire for them and it's a fervent desire that this would happen and it also projects this confident expectation that God could, could do this if the nation would Trust him. So he could bring to pass each of these blessings. Moses has, he, the way he says it, you just see this confidence that God could do this for you and through you if you would just trust him. But we, we do know how the story ends and it kind of puts a little bit of a damper on what otherwise would be this really beautiful poem of blessing for each of these tribes. All right, with that said, let's jump into these individual blessings. Verse 6, we have Reuben's blessing. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. So there's not a lot there. Pretty short. Reuben is the oldest son of Jacob. And his, the tribe associated with him is mentioned first. 
The prayerful desire here by Moses is that they would continue to live and not be few in number. And so that's an interesting expectation or prayer for somebody is that they would live. Now that's been a theme of Deuteronomy is choose life. We know that in the context of the Mosaic Covenant that wasn't physical life or the extension of life wasn't guaranteed. It was connected with trusting the Lord and walking by faith. And if they would trust the Lord, walk by faith, faith, heed his direction for their lives, God promised them physical prosperity in addition to the more important spiritual prosperity that is always God's first and foremost concern. And so here you have sort of a reference to that. Live, that would be my desire for you, Reuben, and don't die. So those are the two things that if you're going to do one, you're not going to do the other. Nor let his men be few. There's this sense that for the faith, the faithful tribes, those that were walking in faith, there was a numerical association of them having a greater number of people in those tribes as God would associate again in the context, the specific context of the conditional Mosaic covenant. Very different than the unconditional covenants that God had made with the nation or, well, had made with the nation. Uh, the, the conditional covenant was conditioned on their heeding God's direction They're walking by faith, trusting God, and letting him lead in such a fashion that he would demonstrate through them this obedience to his will and his purpose that was laid out for them through the law, that his word that was communicated to them through Moses. And so when you're thinking about that as it relates to Reuben, that's an interesting thing that there would, God would associate numerical prosperity with heeding his will heeding his plan, listening and obeying and following him. And so right now, Reuben happens to be sort of mid-pack when it comes to numerical, the numbers of the tribes. If you looked at the census from Numbers 26 that was done just before this in time, it, it had happened just before the na- just as the nation was about to enter into the land, they had a second census. And in that census, if you were to study it out, you would see that Reuben falls somewhere right in the middle in terms of their population size. So interesting that that's the desire is that they would not be few in number and, of course, the association there with obedience in the covenantal, conditional covenantal structure. Now we have Judah's blessing in verse 7. And this he said of Judah, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him. And may you be a help against his enemies. Well, what a nice blessing. You see, Judah was the first to set out whenever the nation moved. They were the first to come into battle. You can see that in Numbers 2, verse 9. And so being up in the front, they were the ones that faced the, I would say, the strongest opposition when they came into battle. And so Moses is desiring that they would enjoy God's help in military conflicts that God would be of help to them against his enemies. Now what a fun reminder for them and for us that ultimately when it comes to battle that it's the Lord that ultimately is the one who's going to provide the victory. It's not going to be us that provides our own victory. And Moses has reminded the nation of that throughout the book of Deuteronomy as this is a book of reminders that it's God that fights your battles. And here's another reference to that, that may you, reference to God, be a help against his in reference to Judah's enemies. See, 
Judah needs to be reminded of that, just like all of the rest of the nation needs to be reminded of that, just like you need to be reminded of that tonight. It's God that is the present help in time of need. Do you know that? Do you rest in that? As you're going through a battle right now, and I know some of you are going through, well, all of you are going through battles of some kind, but as you're going through the battle, are you seeing that God is your very present help in your time of need? That ultimately, it's Him that can come and bring about success in that trial that you're going through. Now, does that success mean that He's going to take away the trial? No. Does it mean that He, could He take away the trial? Yes. But even if He doesn't take away the trial, is He capable of using it for your benefit? The answer is yes. It's a Romans 8.28 principle. That we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God wants to use whatever battle you're in, whatever difficulty or trial you're facing, he wants to use it for your benefit. And in that sense, he can provide the victory no matter what you're up against. Because the victory isn't coming from how your circumstances play out. The victory is coming from God working in and through you to draw you nearer to him in that difficulty so that you're conformed into the image of his son more and more so over time that's the victory now that being said god also provides actual relief from trials themselves god can heal god can take away things god can fix things god can patch things up god can undertake to change people's heart and change change the circumstances that you're facing and it's not wrong to pray for them but it's important to know that the victory in anything is going to come from trusting God in the trial regardless of how he decides to answer the prayers about dealing with the trial itself. So then we have Levi's blessing in 8 through 11. Verse 8 picks up with, And of Levi he said, Let Thuman and your, and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Massa, and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and have and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall be incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him, that they rise not again." So this is some tough sledding here. There's a number of different opinions about what even what verse 8 is, is speaking about. Thuman and Urim apparently refer to some precious stones that were kept by the Levites and, and used as a way of God speaking and giving direction uh, to them. It sounds somewhat mystical. I, I think it is somewhat mystical. I don't... God, before, the revela- before his revelation was completed, before his word was readily available, he communicated and directed people in ways that are different than he does in our lives. And so I don't have some great treatise to give you about that, but I'm sure you could dig up more about it. It's mentioned, Thurm, Thuman and Urim are mentioned about four or five different times in the Old Testament, and they seem to again be referring to these precious stones that were carried with the Levites again, as a way for God to communicate direction to the nation in certain circumstances. So that's the best I can do with, with that. But the overall prayer, if we were going to summarize it, is that the Levites are going to receive this important role as teachers of the law for the nation. That's the focus of this here. 
that they would be acknowledged by their brothers. Instead of being disregarded by their brothers and ignored by their brothers, meaning their fellow national Israelites, that they would be acknowledged, that the rest of the people would take heed to your word which is being communicated through them and by them. And so they have been entrusted with this teaching ministry and this sacrifice uh, or this ceremonial law, this, this way of sacrificing and serving and, and praising the Lord in worship. That's what the word I was looking for. This worship, the symbolic worship of the Lord, they've been entrusted with that in addition to this teaching ministry of the nation of Israel. So you have, you shall put incense and whole burnt sacrifices on the altar. It's talking about that part of their, of their mission. But it's also talking about teaching. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law in verse 10. And so when you're thinking about this, the other thing that jumped out at me, and maybe you'll, you'll see this in verse 9, it says, they have observed your word and kept your covenant. Now this is in reference to the Levitical priesthood or the Levites. And when you see that, the very next thing that comes after that is, so they have kept it and observed it in verse 9, and in verse 10, now they'll teach it to Jacob and Israel. Two references to the same thing. Well, what can you take from that? Well, your testimony or your example matters. If God wants to work through you to communicate his truth to others, and he does, so if each one of you has a teaching ministry of some kind, then the effectiveness of that platform is going to be impacted by your testimony. It's going to be impacted by the example that you are to others. It's convicting even for me. The reality is that they allowed God to work in and through them so that they could be seen as an example for the rest of the people so that when they did teach, they would be coming from a place of credibility instead of coming from a place of you're saying one thing, but you're doing another thing. And ultimately, I'll say this about the criticism is if you were to do you know, searches of the most common criticisms of Christianity, one of the very most common criticisms of Christianity is hypocrisy. Now, that's hip- hypocritical to be offended or to be upset by that because the same person who's affected by that is a hypocrite themselves. But they say that that's, when they pull people, that's one of their number one turns off, turnoffs of Christianity. And I said, I guess the reality is that as each of us has to, on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis, determine whether we're going to trust God or not. By nature, though, all seek their own. And if by nature all seek their own, when we're not walking under the direction of God, then we're going to be walking in a way that fails to reflect God in the way that we should be reflecting God in our lives. So in a sense, it's unavoidable absent glory when we're glorified and the sin nature is taken away. Sin is eradicated completely. But yet, at the same time, victory is available every moment of every day. We can trust God to provide the victory, and he will provide the victory. And when that's happening, when we're walking by means of his spirit, we will be a reflection of him in a way that is encouraging to people, in a way that is consistent with God's character, because his character, his divine nature, is going to be manifest in and through us. And that's what we've been seeing in First John. If you're interested in that, and you're listening online here, you want to hear more about God's character and his nature being reflected in us as we 
walk by means of his spirit or enjoy present fellowship with him, that's something that you could be encouraged by. But that's the only cure for hypocrisy is getting our eyes on him, getting our eyes off of ourselves, leaning on him, not leaning on our own understanding. Because when we're leaning on our own understanding, we won't be a very good example or testimony to others. So Moses is praying that their tasks would be blessed, their ministry in a sense would be blessed, and that their adversities would be adversaries, sorry, their adversaries would be thwarted. And so that's a nice blessing for Levi. Then we move on to Benjamin's blessing in verse 12. Of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. So Moses' prayer is that Benjamin would enjoy the security and peace as the beloved of the Lord, shielded by him. And that reflects Benjamin's special status as Jacob's youngest and especially loved son, along with Joseph. You can read about that favoritism in Genesis 44.20. But he was viewed as a particularly loved son by Jacob. And so the prayer here, or the desire, the intercessory prayer of Moses directed in a blessing toward Benjamin is that they would enjoy the security and the peace of being sheltered and shielded by the Lord. And one of the things that jumped out at me in verse 12 here is when you think about the security that God can provide to his children, that security is available continually. Look at that phrase where it says, all the day long. God shelters him all the day long. You have the opportunity to dwell in safety. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, O Lord, thou, O Lord, makest me to dwell in safety. That's a psalm hanging on the wall near my bed. It's God who provides the opportunity to have that restful peace, that sense of security and safety. And so you think about that, it's available all of the time. And that, that peace and security is available to you. It's available to me. It was, frankly, available to everyone in the nation of Israel, but this was the blessing that was directed to the nation. I will say this uh, to, to Benjamin. All of these blessings, I don't even, I get the sense that Moses, Moses is communicating these to all of the children of Israel. And so while he's, he's earmarking specific things for specific uh, tribes. It wouldn't be exclusive, though. If you have the sense of a loving father communicating blessings to his children in general, and if he's just dedicating or directing these blessings to particular tribes, not even particular individuals, there's a sense of this overarching. This would be Moses' desire for all of the people. And so I just bring that out. So Benjamin was to enjoy secure rest between the Lord's shoulders, and some take the view, and I think this is accurate on his shoulders is a better way of saying that. It's a reference back to chapter 1 verse 31 where we talked about that Moses tells the nation God has been carrying you all this time. God has been carrying you like a father carries his son and so now you have this picture of resting on the Lord's shoulders being carried by the Lord. Now you have Joseph's blessing in verses 13 through 17. This is the longest blessing that is in this chapter. It's directed to Joseph you know, generically because Joseph was the, the son of Jacob, but that blessing was passed on to Manasseh and Ephraim where there was a double blessing there. Instead of having one 
you know, one blessing that passed on from one generation to the next. It was a double blessing to both of his children and both of them ended up being representatives of their own tribe and that was unique to Joseph on account of his faithfulness that occurred. You can read about that in Genesis yeah, roughly chapters 40 through 50, somewhere in that, in that range is the story of Joseph and his faithfulness. Let's read this and we'll read quicker because we've got to pick up the pace. Verse 13, and, Joseph, and of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of the heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits, fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth in its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Reference to God. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and, the, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. And so, Joseph representing Ephraim and Manasseh, they have the longest blessing here. Moses first prayed for Joseph's material prosperity in verses 13 through 16. They were to receive great material prosperity by receiving the choicest of the goods. Then in verse 17, Moses then prays for military success. This is represented by the bull or the ox goring other nations and driving them out of the land. Even though Manasseh was the oldest child, you might remember this part from Genesis 48, Ephraim is credited with more numbers, ten thousands instead of thousands, and that was foretold in the blessing that Jacob gave to Manasseh and Ephraim. So just a little bit of a historical connection there. So some great things there. Uh, what a blessing to have. Uh, you have the material prosperity. You have the military success. But it all comes down to this love that God has. It's, this is a blessing of the Lord. God is the one that d- d- dwells or deals favorably with his people. And what a great reminder that is. Now, Zebulun and Issachar are blessed together in verses 18 through 19. Let's read that. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hidden in the sand. And that would be taken as the the sands of the seashore. And so as you're looking at this, these are the last two sons of Leah, Zebulon and Essachar. They're mentioned together in the same order as they are in Jacob's blessing. The younger is being placed first again. That's not unusual. You see several examples of that in the historical record of the nation of Israel. Now, what is, a, what is the blessing or the desire this intercessory prayer for Moses for these two tribes, it's, it speaks of them together as a unit. And so the phrase is, in your going out and in your tents, that probably refers to the people's daily lives in verse 18. It would be the equivalent of, in your work and in your home. The, the command to rejoice indicated that these two tribes could expect God's blessing in their daily lives. So if you were going to maybe re- rephrase it, it would be re- rejoice, Zebulon, and you, Issachar, in all your activities because God's blessing is going to be on all of those things. Now these tribes together were to summon peoples to the mountain and offer sacrifices of righteousness. And it's not clear who the peoples are or what mountain is meant. 
if, it, if indeed a particular mountain is meant at all. Mountain could just be used poetically to designate a place of sacrifice in, in worship, worship, but this is a blessing from Moses that they would be involved in worship, that they'd be involved in promoting God's righteousness, that they would be a testimony and a blessing to other peoples around them, whether it was other Israelites or it was other nations around them, through a willingness to lift God up and worship him. And then there's this reference to their source of prosperity being the seas. And it's interesting because neither of the tribes touch the seas. They're, they're land borders. So it probably refers to merchants that would be passing through their lands, coming and going from the seas, and that their tribal territories would be passed through and they would be blessed by having access to all of these different sea products. Now in verses 20 through 21, we have Gad's blessing. So let's read that. And, and of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm of the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because a lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. So the blessing of Gad, we see it focuses first on the Lord himself. I love that. That's just such a great reminder to all of the people. Blessed is he who enlarges Gad, and who is that? Well, that's the Lord. Any prosperity or any goodness that would be passed on to us in our lives ultimately comes from the Lord. Every good thing is from above. And so the Lord himself enlarged Gad's territory. Now, how did he do that? Well, he gave him this prime area that was found on the east side of the Jordan River. So you'll recall that when they overthrew the Amorite leaders of Sihon and Og, the Gad was one of the tribes that asked to have their inheritance on the east side of the Promised Land. I think they call it the Transjordan. And so before they even crossed over, they had conquered this whole eastern buffer zone on the east side of the Jordan River, and Gad had been the first to have the fruits of the conquest in the sense that they had asked to take over that land along with one and a half other tribes, and I forget which they were. I think it was half of, the half tribe was of Manasseh, and then it was one other. And so that's what that, a lot of that imagery is referring to, is that they provided the first part for himself, that that was, they had chosen that land on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, Gad was known as, a, as warlike and aggressive. This warlike character is portrayed as a lion that tears an arm and even the head of its prey. Gad chose the first, they chose the best land first, or the leader's part. That's what lawgiver means. They had, as being a leader in those conflicts, they asked for or chose that land. And so the last reference there is, he administered the justice of the Lord. That's a reference to the idea that, that they had to make a promise. Oh, it was Reuben. So it was Reuben and Gad and then the half-tribe of Manasseh were the, the tribes. But they had promised that even though they wanted to have the land as their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River, which Moses agreed to, that they wouldn't settle in that land or that they would settle, but they would take all of their fighting force and they'd go across the Jordan River with the rest of Israel to conquer the rest of the people and to assist in subduing the rest of Canaan land for the rest of the tribes. And you can read about that in a variety of different places, but that promise is made in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. So now we have Dan's blessing in verse 22. 
It says, and of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. So there's not a lot there, but the blessing on Dan is a metaphor describing the inherent ravenous character of a lion's cub that springs on its prey. And so it's a nice way of picturing or metaphorically speaking of this strength and this energy that Moses is desiring for the nation, for sorry, the tribe of Dan as they would go about the conquest in the land when they would go across to the promised land. So he wanted Dan to have the strength of a young lion and the prowess to leap into action. And it's sort of beautiful imagery, but there's not a lot more to say about that. Then we have Naphtali's uh, blessing in verse 23, and it says, And of Naphtali, Naphtali he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. And so Moses expresses the prayerful desire that they would enjoy the full blessing of the Lord and take possession of the area that probably was around the Sea of Galilee is at least what my reading brought up there. And so that's a small, short blessing. Verse 24 and 25, we have Asher's blessing. And this is the last blessing. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze in your days, so shall your strength be. So the last blessing here, Moses is going to express the blessing in terms of Asher being favored more than the other tribes and to enjoying material prosperity that is symbolized by dipping their feet in olive oil or being anointed in a sense. And then their strength there is symbolized by the iron and the bronze of their sandals. So not a lot more to say about that either. An interesting blessing of wanting prosperity, wanting good for that tribe, the tribe of Asher. Now we end with what I think is some good stuff here. It's, it, it's worthy of more of our consideration. Let's read this praise of the Lord that ends this blessing of Moses just as it began with the praise of the Lord. Verse 26, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, a reference to Israel, who rides the heavens to help you. Great imagery there. And in his excellency on the clouds, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. A verse many people have memorized that part anyway. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, Destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety. The fountain of Jacob alone in a land of grain and new wine, his heavens shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you. O Israel, sorry, now it's a question. Who is like you? a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places or their places of worship. So a few things to bring out here in this praise or exaltation of God that ends this chapter. Every blessing begins and ends with the Lord. That's a good reminder. That's how this blessing of Moses began, and that's fittingly how it ends here. God alone deserves the praise and the glory for any and all of it. So it would be pointless to have these human blessings if they weren't couched in or colored in or covered by the hand of the Lord because it's God alone that can provide for his people, not Moses. And so all of the desires or aspirations, positive aspirations in the world, without the direction and the provision, the intervention, the leading of God, 
God's goodness and his grace and his mercy bestowed on this nation and frankly in our lives as well, it would amount to nothing. It has to start and finish. Any blessing in your life has to start and finish with God. So, you know, this has been a little dry in parts. I get that. But as you're thinking of something to take home with you, any goodness, any blessing in your life, it has to start and it has to finish with God and he's the one who should receive all the glory. The praise should be and should go to him. And I think God here, what I love about this is God is presented as incomparable and without equal. I love how it says, there is no one like him. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, verse 26. You could say, there's no one like him. He is one of a kind. Now, he's not just anyone's God. He's your God. So Moses is ending by saying, there is no one like your God. And because you're under his care, there's no one like you. There's no one who could compare to you because you're under the hand of God. You're being provided for and blessed by God. You're being preserved. You're being brought to a place of safety. You're being directed. You're being led. You're being used. You're shining like his face when you're trusting him. There's nobody like him And because there's nobody like him, there's nobody like his people. It's it's an unbelievable promise that that Moses ends with here. He has no equal. Now look at some of the things that are said about him in 26, 27, and 28. God rides the heavens to come to their aid. He is a place of refuge. God is a place of security and safety. His everlasting arms were underneath them, bearing them up and providing victory over the enemy. God provides every needed resource when you're summarizing even verse 28. It's the fountain of Jacob. It's the land of grain and new wine. The heavens are providing the dew. Man isn't providing for himself. God is providing for him. God is incomparable. There is no one like him. And then just as God is incomparable, so is Israel. He says that as this just fascinating question where he says in verse 29, Happy are you, O Israel. But then how about this question? Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? So he starts out by saying, who is like him? That's me paraphrasing, verse 26. There's no one like him. And then who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? Think about an identity. Make an application to yourself here. This, this faraway, distant, past application in the nation of Israel, maybe that's too hard. But you are a people saved by the Lord. Now, not in the exact same way, a, a, different, a different context, in the exact same way as it relates to justification or God providing a way to deal with your sinfulness, in that exact same way. But not in the context of a conditional covenant with God. But yet, at the same time, you could rightfully think of yourself as, who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. It's powerful to think of it in that way. What an identity to have. Do you go about your day saying, there's no one like me. I'm one that God loves so desperately that he provided a way of salvation for me. I am now a person saved by the Lord, by his tender love and grace, mercy, kindness bestowed on me. He cared enough about me 
to save me and he wants to live life with me and he wants me to enjoy a walk of faith, a walk of dependence on him to continue to provide for me in ways I can never provide for myself. That makes me unique just like my God is unique. And do you see that? Do you see yourself that way? Do you see God providing all that you need? Do you see God bringing peace, happiness, contentment, security, and purpose to your life as he was in the lives of the nation of Israel? So when you look at Moses' final blessing, Moses is providing an an encouraging example of someone with a heart for people. This whole blessing, this whole chapter speaks to Moses' love and concern for people, his heart for people. It's evidenced by this intercessory posture he uses to communicate his prayerful desire for the people. It's, it's communicated through a semi-individual nature of communicating a blessing to each tribe. And despite detailed blessings, his primary point is clear and simple, lest it be lost here in all of the sort of detail of some of these specific nuances that maybe are a little bit tough to, to get excited about. I can, I can see how that could be true. But the primary point, it's clear and it's simple. Your God is amazing and without equal. He loves you and provides all that you need. Your success is directly tied to whether or not you trust him and follow him. Let me say that again. This is a summary of this whole chapter, but the whole book, really. Your God is amazing and without equal. He wants them to know that, to understand that, to then appropriate in an experiential, practical way that truth. He loves you and provides all that you need. He's been saying that over and over again in this book of Deuteronomy. And then the third part of that is your success is directly tied to whether or not you will trust him and follow him. And he's been saying that over and over again. That is what Moses wants for the people. That is his desire for the people. That is God's desire for your life as well. What a great reminder to us as it relates to us, even in our day. What a great reminder that God wants us to be men and women that are walking in dependence on him, enjoying a walk of faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we could spend it. Thank you that you've blessed us with easy access to it, that you've made it readily available to us. Pray that we would put as much interest or put as much importance or place as much importance on your word and what you want to teach us as we place on everything else that we let go into our ears, that we let come into our minds, that we communicate to other people, that we place a higher value than anything else on your truth and allowing your truth to be spoken and communicated into other people's lives in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.